the reading is taken from John uh, chapter 17 and we're reading from verses 13 to the end of the chapter. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I will sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." My, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for all that you've done, and we thank you, Lord, for the heart of prayer and how you prayed for us, even as we look at that today. Inspire us by your words and help us be the answer to your prayer. Amen. Um, Outside, if you're staying for the APCM, out on the desk is a bunch of um, paperwork, and that includes a seven-page Vickers report, uh, which I encourage you to read. Um, and in some ways, uh, you can go and read the detail of it, but a lot of the vibe of that report is actually in what I'm about to share. Um, there's uh, uh, an APCM is a good day in which for us to ponder this question that we've been pondering, which is what on earth is the church about? So let's think about that. What on earth is the church about? And necessarily that makes us think about what are we about? And there's a number of ways in which we can approach this question because the church, if you may or may not have realised, is a funny beast and I can prove that to you by simply getting you to look around. 
Um, most of my church ministry life, I've looked at myself and no one else and gone, oh, Lord, God help us. Um, but that's part of the joy of it. And it's a funny beast. A church is a human organisation. We're a charity. We're an employer. We're a service provider. Uh, we're also, uh, well, we're an internet presence these days. Uh, we're also a social construct in the metaphorical life of society. We're a family, we're a home, we're a community, we're a collective of activists, we're a moral compass, perhaps. Sometimes in the narrative of this world, we're the opiate of the masses, or we're the loony left, or the extremist right. Do you see what we're trying to say? We're a weird beast. And different churches think about themselves differently, and that's one of the things that we might want to ponder. Some churches uh, see themselves as a temple into which you enter on a Sunday with reverence and fear. Others see themselves as classrooms where we sit and learn and teach. Others see themselves as a theatre where you come to be entertained and lifted up into some form of experience. And others, and I think this is probably more us, a living room, a place to simply come and, and be. And in some ways, we're just simply a group of people. That's what churches are. And groups of people ask questions and we ask the same question. Everyone who comes into any group, whether that be a football club or a soup kitchen or a political party, will ask something like this. What on earth are we about here? Do I care? Do I belong? Will I give myself to this group? Or will I hang back? And no matter what group you're a part of, we will instinctively ask all those questions. We're a funny beast. We are all those things. And that's why we need to ponder, because it's actually very, very easy for us to think about ourselves as simply just those things and not to make mention of the one thing that does actually set apart a church as something unique. Jill and I, I think, have realised that perhaps in a few of our experiences this week, it's very easy to talk about church and not mention Jesus. Who's the point of it all? And I know I can do that. I can forget who I am. I can forget who we are. We can lose our way. And uh, that, just as in everything else, when we think about this question about church, we have this need to always come back to the Word of God... Who acts, which acts like a mirror to us, constantly conjoling us and provoking us and reminding us this is who you are. It's a word of truth. And so that's what we've been attempting to do in these few weeks, is to bring that question, a self-reflected question, to God's word. And so last week in Romans 12, we had a lot of things talking about bodies, we are the body of Christ. The shape of the church is that we have many different members and different ways in one unity. And not only did it have that sense of being the body of Christ, it talks about us individually with our bodies offering them as an act of service to God. And so at St. Tim's, when I was preaching on this last week, I said, you know that, know that question? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Actually, I think the better question is, have you given your body to Jesus to use this, these things for his sake? 
when we think about what on earth we are about, then we understand that Jesus lays claim to the body life of the church as much as he lays claim to what we do with our physicality and where we locate ourselves and spend the energy of our existence for him. Before we do anything else, we have to ponder those sorts of things. And so over the next few weeks within this little series, we're going to be pondering those things using four words. And they're four words that may be familiar to you. They're four words that come from the Nicene Creed, and they remind us something in which we are not only a human institution, but they remind us ways in which we are also a divine institution. And so if you know the Nicene Creed, you may want to echo it with me as I jump into the last verse, which goes something like this. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We need to do that more often, don't we? Did you hear it, though? One holy, Catholic, apostolic church. And um, as an outpouring, an outworking of the giver of life, the Holy Spirit, there is essentially and necessarily, if we are truly a church, a sense in which we are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And I'm not going to unpack all four words here because that's the point of the next few weeks. What I want to hone in on today is that first word, one. What on earth is the church about? It, if it's nothing, unless it has some sense of unity, we are one. And so we're going to explore that. It makes sense. If we are a divine institution, an outworking of God himself, then it makes sense for us to be one because there is only one God, one perfect being, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, as Paul would say, as he exhorts us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And as Christians, that's why we do not, despite some evidence to the contrary, quickly divide. Or we do not quickly walk away from each other. And it's a tragedy when we do. And the reason we don't quickly divide is not simply because we're nice and we want to get along. Rather, we don't quickly divide because we avoid division because we worship one God. And it's for his sake that we want to manifest in our very selves a single body reflecting the one God who has one heart, one purpose, one joy, one desire, and one character. Our unity and our pursuit of it, therefore, is an act of worship. And if we're still unconvinced about God's heart in this matter, then we only need to look at what, we, what Dave read for us this morning from John chapter 17, where we have Jesus praying. Now, 
John 17 is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, which makes it sound very highfalutin, when actually what it is is a very precious, deep insight into the heart of our Saviour. Here is a communication between two members of the Trinity. Here is the heart of the Son whispering to the heart of the Father in a true unity of spirit. And in that deep place of intimacy, we get to see what does he pray for. And the reality is, at the heart of God, there is a prayer for us. As Jesus prays not only for his friends, but literally and specifically for you and me and us. For his friends, he's praying for their strength, that they may have a joy made complete in themselves. He prays for them because he knows that as his church, as his body, they will be despised and hated by the world. Because he sees them and he sees they have changed these friends of his They've come and followed him. They are becoming a new humanity, as Paul would call it. And uh, and the church has begun in them. And now they don't belong to the world. They belong to him. And so he prays for them to know the truth, the truth of God's word, which is the truth that sanctifies them, literally the truth that sets them apart and makes them different from anyone else through which they are likely to be hated. And that alone is worth pondering about. We are about being different, set apart. We believe things that other people don't believe. We hold to a truth that is our life and in the core of our being. And that's something we'll look at a bit more when we look at the word holy. But one thing is clear, whatever we mean by this sense of this virtue of being one, of the unity... Jesus doesn't mean it in an absolute sense. Sometimes I think we bring into our church life some of the latent Eastern mysticism of 1970s hippiness when we think that the goal of spirituality is to be absorbed into some ethereal perfect oneness with the whole cosmos. And that is not the unity that Jesus speaks of because he's expecting division from the world. Whatever unity has, it has an internal diversity, like the body image that we saw last week. But it also has an external distinctiveness. We are united partly in our difference from the world. And when we forget that, when our focus, our worship is on things like how we might be relevant to the world or marketable or attractive then we're starting to forget something about who we actually are. And that's why we espouse in this parish an aspiration to not be a consumer-driven church. I've heard that language. We don't want to play that game of trying to tickle the world's ears. We want to be truly who we're called to be. See, when we long for acceptance by the world, when we are driven by a desire to be on the right side of someone else's sense of history with no thought as to how the one who has entered into history calls us to be, then we do have a desire for unity, but it's a desire for unity with someone else other than the one who has bound himself to us by covenant. 
And so whatever we mean by a church that is one, we don't mean that. Indeed, sometimes the same heart that is revealed in Jesus' prayer that we may be one also speaks words like this. This is the same Jesus who prayed those prayer for oneness. And he says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. And they'll be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And then he keeps on going. See, the unity of the church is not unity for unity's sake. And it's not unity with everything and anything. It's unity in the sense in which we desire relational, familial, household unity or even marital unity. It is a unity with someone forsaking all others. Our unity is a union with Christ. It's an act of fidelity. It's an act of worship. And this is where we see what Jesus is expressing when he comes to the part of his heart, the part of his prayer, when he is literally praying for you and me. He's prayed for his friends and now he says, I ask not only on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, um, I ask not only on behalf of these, his friends, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word. In other words, I'm praying for my disciples, but I'm also praying for those who will follow after them. He is literally praying for us. And he prays that they all be one. May they be one. May we be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one. As we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so the world may know that you have sent me and loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. Can you see that? It's not just Lord that they may be one. It's Lord that they may be one as you and I and I in them and them in us. It's a desire for union. Not let them be one as in the sense of Christians of the world unite. It's not a virtue in itself. It's let them be one as we are one. Just like a father is jealous for his children, a mother is jealous for the unity of a family, a husband is jealous for his wife and vice versa, so is Jesus jealous for us. Father, bring about a unity of us and him set apart, divided off from any other false union. This is how Jesus prays for us to be one. What on earth is the church about? It's about union with Christ. So how do we respond as we hear Jesus praying for us? Quite simply, it's right for us to long for that which he is praying for, that our prayers may echo his prayers. 
Father, make us one with you, just as you are united with your Son. Catch us up into the intimacy of the Godhead. We pray. Where do we pray from when we pray? We don't pray from outside. Lord, do something for us. We pray in Christ, in the intimacy of that relationship. Lord, catch us up into that unity. And there's great joy in that. And so we invest in that unity. But as I begin to bring this to a close, and I think this is where I'm echoing something what's in my vicar's report, I want to put before us two challenges that come as a corollary with that desire for unity with Christ. Think about this thought. If the essence of our unity is relational oneness with Jesus, that means that nothing else can be the centre of our oneness if we are to be true to him. As I think about my relationship with God in those terms, I know that I have a wrestle. I realise I don't like relational unity when it comes to God. Most of us don't. It's the part of our human existence which both yearns for it and holds it at bay. Here's an illustration. Over the last seven years, you may know that Jill has been on a journey uh, towards British citizenship. She is now British. And now that she has a British passport, she has institutional certainty. She is bound to the one union of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And she has in that passport a set of rights and responsibilities that cannot be taken away, not even by the Queen. And unless you've committed a terrorist act. And, uh, yeah. um, <laughs> her safety, her identity relies on no one else. She is in and of herself British. <laughs> but can I tell you, for seven years, until that passport came through the letterbox at the hands of Her Majesty's servant, the postman, we relied on something else. We relied on bureaucrats being nice. We relied on a system working. We relied on us being able to gather the right paperwork and ticking the right boxes. We had to rely on a system of visa applications and lots of paperwork, and it was exhausting and costly. And mostly, I for one, because I don't trust bureaucracy to get it right, lived in a place of anxiety. Our existence was contingent, and we were at the mercy of a powerful government beyond our control. And if we're honest... We treat God the same way as our government. Many of us would rather have institutional certainty with God, a relationship of mutual obligation. We want to be able to march right into God's throne room and assert our right to sit there as someone made in the image of God. We want his sense of justice to agree with our own, his timing to line up with our timing, and in some place we have learned to wave around the paperwork of our theological constructs 
to assert our certainty and his obligations on us. We desire unions of mutual obligation more than relational unity because in them we have rights and we are safe in and of ourselves. But that's not how it works with God. What higher authority do we reach out to to call on us for some make us safe with God, oh God? And so it has to be relational unity. And that's what we see in the grace of God. The unity he offers is a relational one, a shared vulnerability, an entrusting of one with another. God reaches down and comes to us and makes himself vulnerable. And in the other direction, we learn to trust, not in some cosmic obligation that binds God, but simply in his character in his word, in his heart. We come into his throne room, so to speak, not because we have the right to be there, but simply because he wants us there. He has every right, if you like, to throw us out and to smite us. But we dare to come close, not because he is bound to not do that, but because we trust that he doesn't want to, and in fact, we trust that he loves us. Evidence of which is a cross 2,000 years ago. God doesn't owe us anything that is not on which our unity is bound. He isn't bound by anything except his character and his love. And so as we respond to this desire to be one, you know the one thing that hurts relational unity? Unwarranted mistrust fear-driven holding at arm's length. When we act like that, it doesn't diminish his love and his character, but it does diminish our joy and our embrace of the reality of our union with him. It's why it says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's not because he's holding out going, oh, that wasn't enough faith, you haven't done your job. It's because if it's not based in trust, it's done out of defensiveness, out of, a, out of a way of wanting to make him obliged to us. It's not true unity. It's just a subtle attempt to coerce God onto our side. Anything we do that is not based in faith is not worth doing. There are other human organisations that will do those things. And I don't have the energy for them, to be frank. True unity is necessarily about trusting Jesus and the goodness of his heart and putting everything we do into that one reality. That's my first pondering for myself before anyone else. I'm not preaching at you here. Second thing is this. If the essence of our unity is relational oneness with Jesus, then nothing else can be. And the second corollary is that sometimes, even as we are mindful to maintain the spirit of unity as much as we are able, sometimes unity is expressed in a walking apart. Jesus let people walk away. 
Jesus, desiring unity, confronted people and risked rejection. Jesus drew lines and said, I'm not going there. When Jesus gave words, they were sometimes hard and confronting, always life-giving. And sometimes that meant he lost disciples. His church declined. And while that saddened and wearied him, he didn't chase after them with cries of, it's okay, that bit's not important, let's just be together. He was jealous for them. We have in this church a wonderful diversity of all manners of gifts and stories and wonders and talents and joys and hopes. And I love us for that. And we want to release the full range of the kaleidoscope of God's glorious new creation that is in the vine, Sheffield. But it's not at any cost. If our focus and our unity is not the person and joy and truth of Jesus, then that diversity will divide us. And I, for one, would be grieved by that. But I would let it happen. Brothers and sisters, you've heard me say a number of times over the last few months, even over the last few years, that I'm not sure what the plan is going forward. I'm not sure what the future holds. My heart's desire is to release the full swathe of our diverse gifts. I delight in what's happening here on Sunday mornings and in coffee groups and in home groups and in emerging things in various places. Now we're sounding like an APCM report. And we're taking tentative steps and gently exploring the extent to which our faith is growing. The joy of that diversity means that you don't need me to tell you what to do. You have the word of God. You have the mind of Christ. Use it. Dig into it. Explore it. Explore your vision of what the kingdom of God looks like in your heart, in your home and in our midst. Do that. I'll back you. I'll share the discernment with you. I'll learn from you. And we'll do our best to make sure that we have a unity of coordination and a unity of organisation and a unity of communication and all the other churchy bits. There is much I don't know about what might emerge because it's not mine to dictate it to you. Let's do this. I have the word of the Lord. Follow me. It's not a unity built around that. What is mine to do is to lead myself and my family and to exercise whatever spiritual leadership I might have in this parish, first and foremost, to call us all, me included, first and foremost, to that relational unity and that worship, that intimate union with the Father that Jesus, our Saviour, our brother, our lover, prayed for. And that will release the diversity of things that I wonderfully cannot predict. There is the joy of true fellowship, you see. We sit at each other's feet. We prefer one another. And we take an interest in each other. And we receive new people into our midst. And we say to each other, lead me, brother and sister, to the one we both know. Show me Jesus and we shall be one. And then Jesus' prayer is answered. Even here, the world will know in the unity of our worship, expressed diversely, a mystery is revealed in us. The presence of God is made manifest. Just as Jesus prayed, the world may know through them that you have sent me and have loved them 
us, even as you have loved me. So here endeth the sermon and the delivery of my APCM report. You can read the paperwork later. I'll speak to it for about 30 seconds in the meeting. But for now, what we're going to do is worship. We do that by singing. It's just another boring lyric video. But it's not that. It's an opportunity, just as we have each time we meet, to turn our hearts to the one in whom we have our being. Lord Jesus, we love you, we adore you. If we do stuff that's built around coercing you or bigging ourselves up, Lord, do us the grace of not letting us get away with ourselves. Rather, draw us back to you so that all that we do wells up firstly as an act of faith and of trust and of joy. In your name we pray. Amen. And let's sing. How I love